every single person who's listening to this has taken care of themselves over and over and over again. But when we feel threatened, when we feel anxious, we think we're not going to be able to take care of ourselves and totally forget that we have ongoingly taken care of ourselves, even if it's taken a while to figure it out and take care of ourselves. And even if we had to ask for help in order to take care of ourselves, we actually have taken care of ourselves. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Worked Up, the podcast where you learn to write your own success story. Today is a very special episode for me. We feature a conversation with Marilyn Grayman. She is a psychotherapist practicing out of New York City. She is an author. She's run workshops, seminars, retreats, intensives. And what's really incredible about Marilyn is she comes from a lens that's not only therapeutic, but is also through consciousness. And it really speaks to a lot of what I think people are looking for these days, which is a little understanding, a little bit of purpose, and a little bit of direction. And on a personal note, she has been a tremendous source of wisdom for me throughout the past decade plus. She has opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And in this conversation, we tackle relationships with others and with ourselves through the lenses, again, of therapeutic conversation and also consciousness. So enjoy. Isn't it funny how we get very annoyed and worked up when people we don't pay are direct with us and tell us the truth. But when we do pay people to be direct (laughs) with us, we just take it. Yes. Well, that's the exchange. And that's what you signed up for. And that's what you asked for. And you don't, we don't usually ask a friend for feedback. Often they give it whether we ask for it or not. People don't like to get feedback they haven't asked for. They just want to be heard. You know what's so interesting about that? That makes me think about expectations. Because one of the drums that I beat with my coaching clients is, what expectations have you set? And what I think you would refer to as a contract, right? Yes. So what are the expectations you've outlined? And how clear is the other party on those expectations and their ability to meet them? And what you just said is that when there is an exchange of money, there's a clear expectation. And nine times out of 10, when you're in a personal relationship and someone gives you feedback, it's not asked for. (laughs) Usually, usually people just want to be heard. And then to ask permission, can I suggest something? And hopefully some people are willing to say no. Most people say yes anyway, but probably good to be able to say, no, I just want you to listen to me. I need someone to hear me. I'd like to hear myself talk out loud. So that's also establishing an expectation of what you want from the other person. Yes. And I guess it's a form of boundary setting. Yes. And it's good that if you have an ongoing relationship with someone and they don't meet your expectations to really adjust your expectations and start expecting them to act the way they always act rather than to act the way you think they ought to because you end up being the one that's uncomfortable. They're doing their thing, and you're uncomfortable that they're doing it. But if you uh, are willing to accept how they are, it's much easier on you. It seems like you're doing it for them, but actually you're doing it for you. You're making me think of the saying that holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, when we're upset and annoyed, it lives inside our body. It's the acid in our system. And so if you want to clear up the acid, it's not like someone else is going to change because you want them to. I mean, some people can and will, but we're talking about when they don't. It's that person's job to see if they could accept how that person is. And if they can't, maybe that's not a good friendship or love interest or, yeah, I would say a relative. Very often you have to hang in there anyway. Yeah, well... 
You were just making me think of, well, doesn't everyone just want a magic pill? (laughs) (laughs) And I say, if I had a magic wand, I'd be a billionaire, but I don't have one. And I don't know anyone who does. So yeah, we'd like a magic pill. It would be nice, one or not. It would, but I don't think that's why we're here. I think we're here to go through, uh, to learn through difficult experiences. Can you tell me more about that? Well, it's a Hindu philosophy and a Buddhist philosophy. And from, from their point of view, suffering is the only way that we learn. It has something to do with the idea that there's some, something we came here to learn rather than just hang out and have a really good time. Because you may notice when you're having a really good time, you're not learning anything. You're having a really good time, which is great. But uh, some, some of us have to learn some things so that life feels better. And our health stays intact because if we don't really change what needs to be healed, our body suffers as well, not just our psychology. Sarno. It always makes me think of Sarno. (laughs) So I toiled over how to structure this conversation with you Uh because I have learned so much about myself and so much about life and the nature of relationship, romantic, professional, person, opposite person, from family and self, family and self, Self. right? Yes. And I want to go in a million directions (laughs) and I feel like we could talk for five hours. All roads lead back to the idea of consciousness. Yes. And I think this goes back to what you were just saying about a Hindu philosophy or a Buddhist philosophy. And when I think of the word consciousness, I think that sometimes it's been co-opted or bastardized in a way to be more woo-woo than it really is, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not really woo-woo at all. And consciousness is being awake and aware about what's going on and not falling into your psychological response to it. Or being awake and aware about what's going on, including what's going on with you. And if you fall into the psych- your psychology about it, you can also watch yourself do it with great compassion for the fact that you're stuck into something. But the consciousness is not like, it's not like a critical observer. It is a neutral, loving observer. Oh, wow, look at that. Oh, oh, yeah, I just fell into that trap. That's the trap I go into a lot. I take that personally every time. And there I am right now taking it personally. Okay. But that you notice it is the biggest deal. And sometimes you only notice it later. Oh, my God, I took that personally, and I've been upset for the last half hour. Ah, I see. And that's consciousness. So so really, it's about being present. It's not being present with a compassionate view. Because sometimes when we're critical, we think we are present, but we're present critically, and that's part of the psychology. When you say psychology. Yes. What do you mean? I mean, whatever has come from the traumas that you experienced in childhood that gets generalized into every day. So if you felt left out when you were a child, either by your family or by bullying or by friends, as an adult, you will probably feel left out, whether or not you're left out, actually, but you would, because you keep looking for it, you expect it. And it hurts just as if you were seven years old or 12 years old. And I call that time traveling, going back into our psychological history, when in fact, you might be being left out. And then the, qu- the question is, what would you like to do about it? Is there a conversation to have about it, etc.? But the depth of the feelings is the seven-year-old or the 12-year-old not the 24-year-old, 34-year-old, or 54-year-old. And so I say, if we're upset for more than three minutes, we have time travel. Usually, I actually think it's two minutes, but I give an extra minute 
so that if if your friend gets upset about something and you say, why is she so upset? It's because it's in her history. But you're being amazed by it is because it's not in your history. So you can't relate to it. You don't have that trauma. But you're watching someone who has time travel into his or her trauma. And so that's what we do. And when some people say, why are you so upset? It's not in their trauma history, but you're in yours. And so the thing is consciousness would have you observe you're doing that. So there's two questions that begs. The first is the what do you do? What's the action you take when you notice that you are time traveling? Well, there's there's, um, a sequence. First, you notice it in hindsight. Like two hours later, you say, I, I, I took that personally. That was very insulting, and I've been upset all this time. The, you do that for a while about something, and then you start noticing it while it's happening. And then you notice while it's happening, but you cannot do anything about it because you're like in it and watching it. Very frustrating. You're on yes, your way. Yes, it is. <laughs> I know that first sound. Yes, yeah. it is. Well, and we all do, including the ones when I that come up for me. And the third thing that you do that enough, it starts happening, and then you notice it, and you actually can change and say, "Wait a minute." So I have a historical story with my uh, husband, who I often thought I was very critical, and I was working on myself at the time, and noticed that I was like many women <laughs> critical <laughs> or let's just say like my mother my my husband say, would never say that i'm critical don't worry <laughs> that's right it's automatic it's so automatic I, I yeah know. so uh so he walked in and i started being critical i did i don't even know if i said hello and then i stopped and i said oh my god i just did it and i said to him would you walk out back out and come back in again because i see i'm getting very critical. And he was thrilled. (laughs) And he walked back out and came in. And then I talked, I, I was able to make a point, but not by criticizing him, but actually uh, having a request of him, which is a very different thing. How do you differentiate the two? Well, criticizing would mean you did the statement, you did something wrong. Why did you do that? When are you going to stop doing that? How come you did that? Etc. That would be critical. Having a request would be, this is really hard on me when, when that happens, not when you did that. This is very hard on me when that happens, and I, I, w- I would love it if you would, and then say what you want. Can you feel the difference? For sure. And I keep thinking of its application in the business world, because giving and receiving feedback is a crucial part of running any business. Yes. and. Oftentimes, it's blaming, quote unquote, or seen Mm -hmm. as blame when people deliver criticism as, you did this wrong, do this next time. Yes. As opposed to looking at it from a different lens, how it affects the organization or the team or whatever it may be. Yeah. When you're being critical, you're setting someone else, the other person up to be defensive. It happens every time you're being critical to someone, they become defensive and therefore the conversation doesn't go very well because now they are defending themselves rather than listening. And that's why shifting from criticism to making requests really works. Also, again, you do it selfishly because you'll start getting what you want if someone's actually listening rather than continuing what feels like an argument. If you're, so you can have your cake and eat it too. Exactly. And sometimes we don't want to do it for someone else. So it's good to know that it actually would help each of us to make requests instead of criticisms. And it it takes some work, you know. So when I'm working with someone and they say, well, how should I say that? It's easy for me to tell them how to say it because that's not my dilemma. It's their dilemma. So sometimes it's hard to think it through. But you can one can practice it. How do I ask for what I what I want and need without consulting the other person? 
it's funny you say that because I was in a conversation with a client yesterday where we were talking through a difficult conversation she had to have. And I made that point uh-huh. <laughs> because she, she was saying, it, I wish you could do it for me. And I said, it's easy for me to do because I have no emotion in this. I have no horse in the race. But I'm when not, you, I'm not in my psychology. Ah, there you go. I'm, I'm not, not in, in my, my psychology. psychology. I'm, I'm being triggered. So it's hard for me to think differently than to want to strangle somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Which we all do sometimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, we do not advocate violence on WordDoc. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So one thing that has been very clarifying for me is seeing my psychology as a veil that almost serves as a blanket put over reality in my mind, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yes. Where when you are opposite somebody or when you are in a difficult conversation, realizing that the emotion, which is triggered by the psychology, is what is clouding your ability to be clear. And that begs the second question of consciousness that we were talking about before, which is, let's say you have two people opposite each other who have different psychologies and different traumas and different backgrounds. And therefore, there's tension that arises. Mm -hmm. How can you communicate to come to a place of peace opposite each other? Yeah. Well, a great uh, Hindu master said that people in relationship are like two rough, rough stones. And if they rub long enough and hard enough, they become two smooth stones. And that shows up mostly in committed marriages, relationships, but it's definitely parent, child, uh, brother, sister, etc. If something happens, if I do something to you and it, and I'm upset and I, and I deal with my upset in a certain way that could be offensive, but you don't have that in your history. You could be very kind to me, very nice to me, hold my hand and let me talk it through. But if what the way that I am responding to this upset that I have triggers your history, and now we both have time traveled, we are now in the rubbing of the stones. And so in reverse, if you have an upset and the way that you're expressing your upset triggers me, then I am time traveling the same way as you are because you're talking about something you've been upset about for more than three minutes and Mm. it touches something in me that I'm now upset about for more than three minutes and now we're rubbing the stones. And there's no consciousness at that moment. Or someone can say, oh, here we go again. So when I work with couples, I sometimes say the first person who announces that we're in one of those systems wins, you know, so that it's like a, (laughs) a moment... Uh, to stop, to stop it, because you, the, because as soon as someone says we're in it, that's a moment of consciousness. Because at that moment, the person who announces it just pulled out just a little bit from the time travel upset to say, "Oh, we're in it, right?" That's why I think they win. Also, it slows down the rubbing of the stones. You have to just both find a way to calm down and. Uh, work it out. And this, of course, could be at work as well. It definitely could be at work. I'm laughing for two reasons. Number one is another thing I've learned from you is the power of humor in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So when there's a disagreement, having a joke that comes up or a word, and I'm laughing about the rubbing of the stones because Uh my husband is very well aware of this concept. And fortunately, we've gotten to a place where if we're at each other, which ultimately always happens in relationship, right? He'll just turn to me and start doing the sign of the stones rubbing. He goes, the stones are rubbing. That's fabulous. And that moment he's conscious. He's both in the ups, his uh, part of the upset. He's, he has time traveled, but he has also, he woke up. And, and it's really terrific. frustrating when he gets there before I do. I <laughs> don't course. like that. Of I don't like that. But you should actually be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I am. I'm very grateful. Yeah. I'm both at the same time. I like, I like the four-letter word both. It yes. helps a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the other reason I'm laughing is because I can think of 
no less than three examples right now of situations where people had really tough relationships at work, either a really critical boss or a really tough coworker, and they've become their best advocate over time. And I think that's such a beautiful transition. And I think it's an illustration, not only of what you're saying in the context of work, but in this concept of evolution and growth. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. And um, very often you can find at work, you could find your family. You could find the one that's really like your mother and the one that's really like your father and the one that's really like your sister. And um, sometimes it's not the same sex. Uh, you know, a man could look be like your mother. And, and we do attract what it is that we were raised with in a very strange way. And so work could also that's another way to stay awake and aware at work to see if you can identify. Oh, I relate to that person like he's my father. That's why I. That's why I feel a little afraid of him. And uh, triggers, and then, trigger, <laughs> time travel. <laughs> trigger. Well, right now I'm time traveling to my old work environment where I became very aware of the fact yes. that I was relating to certain people as parental figures because I wanted their approval. Yes. And I didn't want to be the bad girl. I yeah. wanted to be the good girl that got the pat on the back. Yes. We'll and do we- anything for love, unfortunately. And isn't it ironic that in the work context, love so often shows up as approval? Mm-hmm. For sure. But the only person you can really count on to love you 24-7 is you. Okay. So let's talk about that. Okay. Okay. Because I think that's something a lot of people experience in their lifetime, which I would call a challenged relationship with self. Yes. I think this comes up obviously in personal life. The way I see it in terms of a work context is self-doubt. I see Mm self-criticism. I see expectations of failure. Mm -hmm. I see holding yourself back. Yes. Getting very frustrated at yourself for not doing things you think you, and I purposefully do quotation marks, should be doing Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. you are not doing. Mm -hmm. How can you work on repairing that relationship? Well, since I'm a therapist, I would have to go and say that it's some healing of the past. Because mm-hmm. self, because every child to some degree has some self doubt because our parents didn't see life the way that we might have seen it, and we were told that how we saw it was wrong or what we were doing was wrong, and they had us feel that uh, we weren't everything we needed to be, which has to show up in the workplace. And so, being able to identify how it was in childhood. And to see that there was a very precious child, very precious little boy or very precious little girl who was taking the criticism as if it was absolutely true rather than a discomfort of his parents, a discomfort of her parents. In in other words, when people are critical, they're telling you their limitations and their preferences. If someone Mm. says you're too noisy, they're telling you that they're having a hard time with noise. Not that you're too noisy, but they're having a hard time with noise. If you say, if if a dad says you're being too sensitive, you're being too sensitive for him. But maybe you're not too sensitive a person. Maybe he has discomfort with sensitivity, and so that's his limitation and that's his preference. But as children, we can't even think like that. Even if we had a little fairy godmother on our shoulder whispering in our ear, this is your dad, not you, it would be very hard to believe. And so when we get that kind of input when we're a child, we grow up thinking that we're not enough, there's something wrong with us, uh, they know better, ah, at work, they know better. Uh, of course, if you know, if you have work and you're supposed to fulfill your job, right? So if you're being told you're not fulfilling your job, I guess you have to think about how can I do that? But it's not usually spoken like that. It's usually 
either spoken or received as criticism. And so you time travel. You bring up the idea of trusting yourself. Mm -hmm. That's also something I see. That's a close cousin of everything we're talking about. Mm -hmm. How do you start building that self-trust? Well, I think we're not trained to be able to make mistakes. But if, we're, if we would allow ourselves to make mistakes, we would actually learn from them. It's very hard to learn from someone who tells you not to do something some way that you don't experience and therefore you haven't learned for yourself why that doesn't work. It's sort of like a kid has to touch a hot stove so he knows it's hot. You say it's hot a hundred times, he, doesn't, he she doesn't know what in the world you're talking about? You touch the hot stove. Oh, I see. But we're not really allowed to make mistakes. And if we're making mistakes, we call them bad and wrong rather than a trial and error universe that we live in, which is, this is a trial and error universe. And so in trusting ourselves, it would require some willingness to make mistakes and learn from them. Oh, that really isn't good for me. Oh, that really doesn't fit me. Oh, that's not really what they wanted. And I would have preferred that they wanted that, but they, they're the boss and this is what they wanted. And so trial and error, trial and error. The great way is not complicated for those who have no preferences. That's right. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. a great poem. If anyone likes poetry, I actually have it printed out and on my desk. It's called The Third Chinese Patriarch. It's Third Chinese Philosophy, Third Century Chinese Philosophy. Yes. And it's really all about consciousness without being called consciousness and seeing fact and reality without judgment. Without judgment, without, without a psychology, without judgment, just, oh, that's how that is. In terms of trusting yourself, I think one thing I've learned from you that really helped me is realizing that I historically had looked for the things that supported the belief I had. Yes. So being very proactive and actually making lists Mm -hmm. to support different things. Yes. And seeing it on paper. And seeing all the times I had taken care of myself and all the times I had whatever it is really helps to shift that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two things I'd like to talk to about that. One, a very brief example, if I could, that I was in an office on the roof, at the roof level of the building, and there was a staircase, but no elevator that was easily accessible. And so the people at at the desk downstairs gave us an elevator to put the furniture in so that nobody else used the elevator. When we got to the floor, uh, oh, my, oh my God, two men showed up. They took the uh, furniture up into the room. We had no idea at the beginning how we were going to do this. Those things all fell in place. And I said to the woman who was helping me, isn't that great, all the support we got? And she said, what support? Mm. And she's somebody who never expects to be supported. And so she can't even see it when it's there. I know that sounds so strange in this story. But when we have learned certain expectations, we don't see, we don't, we count those and we don't count the the opposite, which is what you said, listing the opposite. So uh, if I can think of another example, I will. So that's one thing about that. The other about um, trusting yourself is that every single person who's listening to this has taken care of themselves over and over and over again. But when we feel threatened, when we feel anxious, we think we're not going to be able to take care of ourselves and totally forget that we have ongoingly taken care of ourselves, even if it's taken a while to figure it out and take care of ourselves. And even if we had to ask for help in order to take care of ourselves, we actually have taken care of ourselves. So I give the assignment, which is probably what you're referring to, of writing 100 things that you have done to to take care of yourself, both today, like 
if everyone could right now think of all the things they did to, today to take care of themselves, like they woke up 15 minutes earlier because they wanted a stretch before they got to work and that was good for them. So they took care of themselves or they slept in an extra 15 minutes because they really needed to take care of themselves, these little things. And mm-hmm. then these moments in your past where it was difficult, but you did it. You did take care of yourself. And the more you see that you do, the calmer you can be when confronted with something that you aren't so sure you can take care of because you have taken care of yourself. Therefore, you're capable of taking care of yourself. So you will. You may not know how right this minute, but you will. And that you're, can you're, be very calming. Yeah. You're making me think I had a professor in college in my corporate finance class. Okay. Who we were learning about debt and we were learning about leverage, which enhances financial results. And he said, I will never forget this. This is probably why he said it. Leverage is like cocaine. It makes the great times great and the bad times awful. And I have never forgotten that. Uh You just made me think of that because in a strange way, consciousness keeps the good times great yes and makes the bad times better yes it does right so it's Mm -hmm. maximizing gain and minimizing risk to put it in my very finance construct (laughs) of seeing the world (laughs) i would never be able to do that (laughs) (laughs) but it's so interesting I want to ask you so many questions. First, can you can you tell the story about the sweater when you were younger, when you talk about preferences with your mother? Oh, yes. Uh, my mother would tell me uh, to put on a sweater because I'm cold. And I'm thinking, I'm cold? I don't think I'm cold. Put on a sweater. You're cold. And so I put it on. Now, to doubt one's own experience of whether they are cold or not is, could actually be seen as somewhat serious. And so we, I'm not the only one who had a mother who would talk like that. Um, and, and so w- one day when I was a little older, and she did it again, and I said, Ma, are you cold? She said, yes. I said, so um, you're uncomfortable looking at me because you think I'm cold? Yeah. And I'm not cold, but you're still uncomfortable looking at me thinking that I'm cold. And she said, yeah. I said, so if you said, please put on a sweater, I'm uncomfortable looking at you because I think you're cold, I'll put on the sweater. But I can't think I'm cold when I'm not. I think that is such a good illustration of what you mean when you say everyone is telling you their preferences. Yes. And discomforts. And discomforts. Yes. Preferences often come from the discomforts, yeah. And to your point, it contributes to these feelings of self-doubt and not trusting yourself. Yeah. Because you were in a position as a child of doubting that experience which you were having. Well, you, you figure that these tall people that are raising you know what they're doing, whether they know or not. (laughs) (laughs) And so you, you have to think that you must be wrong and they must be right. Because if you really got that they were wrong when you were little, you'd be very afraid of who was raising you. And so there is a way in which, oh, mom must be right. Dad must be right. I see. They must be right. I must be wrong. At the beginning, self-doubt for sure. But Parents don't don't know everything, and um, some of our parents are pretty terrific, even though we may have had some battles. And then there are some parents who don't really know what they're doing, and that's hard too. But um, we believe that they're right and we're wrong, because it would be too hard to believe the opposite when you're five years old. Mm. And so we grow up figuring other people know better than we do, which is part of that self-doubt that you're talking about. And some people have that in their history much more severely than others. Now, if you're raised by a very strong personality, you will feel overcome by their reality. And then you would have to 
look for your own, which would take quite a while, which is what teenage life tries to do uh, somewhat successfully and somewhat quite unsuccessfully, unfortunately. Yeah. And I see a direct line from that experience you're explaining right now and describing to the word should. Mm -hmm. I should do this. I should do that. Do you mind sharing your philosophy on the word should? Well, should would be um, the decision of something that other people uh, demand of you and that a should is doesn't come from inner, outer, inward, unless you have a whole list of shoulds that you were raised with and now you're shoulding yourself from the minute that you wake up to the minute that you go to sleep. And so the question is, the most important question would be, will this work for me if I do it? Or will it not work if I do it, rather than the should? Like, will I get the results I want if I do it? Or will I not get the results I want if I do it? Because wanting to or not wanting to is not always the best place to make a decision like that. It would be, am I going to get the results that I want? I think that's a very wise way of putting it. Because I know a lot of people, including myself, have a should voice in their head. and it's sometimes hard to differentiate between what is real and what is psychology. So that's my next question mm -hmm. is how can you differentiate between a gut instinct or a conscious decision or a decision that's being made from psychology? Well, that would, that would take a little while to, to uh, learn how to trust the voices. If you're talking about intuition or, you know, I feel it in my gut, that's either intuition or it's my mother's out there and I'm responding to her. <laughs> and so, um, and that's very hard to distinguish. Again, I think that there has to be some trial and error. So you get to know yourself in relationship to what's going on around you. And I would say it would depend on um, your body sensations and the thoughts that you're having and the stories that you're making up. You know, we, we often in experience make up all kinds of stories deciding that something's ha going to happen. Something that's happening is happening for a reason. And that's not the reason at all, but it's a reason that we have experienced in the past. So we pull those reasons forward. So an intu intuition would be a, a, a more calm feeling, not out of some reaction to something. It might take a quiet moment. It might take, um, a slight meditation to just say, is this, how does this really feel for me? How does this really fit for me? And then here comes some trial and error. The thing is, we do have to tolerate trial and error. I, I, I've uh, said that I, I taught kindergarten for 12 years in a really difficult neighborhood. And the one thing I regret is that I didn't each day put up a mistake chart and have the kids talk about the mistakes they made and then talk about what did they learn from the mistake? And does anybody else learning from this, so from Henry's mistake, uh, et cetera, so that mistakes would be okay to make, so that in adulthood, it would be okay to make mistakes. Not to keep making the same mistake, by the way. <laughs> you mm -hmm. have to learn from them. So I'm not just listing on the mistake chart mistakes. I'm also talking about, well, well, what could you learn from it? And maybe Henry can't think of that, but somebody else in the group could think of it. So I suggest maybe your listeners should um, write, <laughs> write down mistake charts that day and see what they learned from it. That, I want to do that with my kids. Yeah. Let them make the mistakes. It is a trial and error universe and we don't like it. I hate it. Yeah. I want a Absolutely. magic pill. Yeah. I want to have all the answers. Yeah, well, some of us take the wrong job. Someone, some of us marry the wrong person, you know. Some right. of us move to the wrong city. And then we hopefully find out it's not the right place for us. But it's going to happen, not all the time, but to everyone to some degree. And then, But if you keep making the mistake, same mistake, you would have to check to see why you would keep doing that. And I think that goes back to expectations you're not willing to adjust. You bring up the fact that you taught kindergarten. Yes. <laughs> You've made the comment to me in the past that everything you learned about people, you learned from teaching kindergarten. Yes. 
you have a fascinating story in terms of how you found your way to therapy and psychotherapy. Would you mind sharing that a little bit? Well, mostly I, I, um, I made a mistake. <laughs> and Good I, segue, Marilyn. Yeah, yeah and, I, <laughs> and I, and I married the wrong person. No, I married the right person for me at that time because I did thank my uh, ex-husband uh, for being difficult. He knew he was difficult, and I thanked him for being difficult because it actually woke me up about a lot of things. And I left him in, um, I left him on January 3rd and I was in therapy on January 14th. So that is how I got uh, to therapy. And I feel like maybe I was already a therapist as a kindergarten teacher because I felt in teaching these children that they needed to learn two things. My intention was two things that they learned to love learning and that they learned to love themselves. And then mm-hmm. exactly what I taught them was just how we got there. So, and one reason I chose to teach kindergarten is I wanted to teach children, not math. <laughs> <laughs> and especially when I was teaching, you could really teach the children because there wasn't the same demand of expectations for learning and it was mm-hmm. a, it was a, kids kids had a tough life back there so it was good for me to have room to uh, to uh, teach from yeah so therapy therapy the car accident story okay do you mind sharing that no um so uh, in the process of, so no one in my family ever had a divorce, and I really was unhappy in my marriage. And I was um, tw- 24 when I left my husband. No, I was 24 when I married him. I was 26 when I left him. But I was teaching. I had a little blue Volkswagen, and I, did a, I drove from South Jamaica to Manhattan, where we lived. And I was riding up Third Avenue. And when I taught, I was engrossed in the in what I was doing, but as soon as I left, my mind would go, should I leave, shouldn't I leave? Should I leave, shouldn't I leave? Should I leave, shouldn't I leave? I couldn't think of anything else. And mm. whatever stories would go with I should leave, I had them, and whatever stories uh, that would go with I should stay, I had them, and I was driving up Third Avenue, should I leave, shouldn't I leave? Should I leave, shouldn't I leave? And suddenly I got rammed into my Volkswagen by a police car. I spun around, and the policeman afterward came over to me and said, didn't you hear the siren? And I said, no, I did not hear the siren. Why didn't I hear the siren? Should I leave? Shouldn't I leave? Should I leave? Shouldn't I leave? And it really woke me up to the fact that my mind could kill me, Mm. and my being engrossed in what it's saying could actually kill me. Because I was rammed into on the on the uh, driver's side, and that I wasn't hurt is like a miracle. And I really feel like I would like to tell everybody who's listening: don't wait until you're in a car accident <laughs> to see that your mind is on to something other than where you are. And that's what the mind does: the mind takes us down incredible journeys with all kinds of possibilities, most of which will never come true. And there's a statistic that we think five times more negative stories than we think positive stories, which is really troublesome if you think about it. But we live as if those stories could come true rather than saying, oh my God, I'm telling myself stories. That's a story, not a fact. It's not a fact. It could happen. So when my clients tell me, negative stories, I usually counter with a realistic, positive story. And they say, well, how do you think, why do you think that's going to happen? I said, well, you question the positive story, but when you say your negative story, you never question, how do you know that's going to happen? And that's what I want to say. How do you know that's going to happen? And we all do this. It's not like anyone gets away with it, but to know you're telling a story is consciousness. You could either be in the story, which I was driving the car, 
or, oh my God, I'm in a story. And that, then I could have heard the siren. It's a I was thought, aware. not a fact. It's a thought, not a fact. It's a, a thought, thought, not, not a, a fact. fact. A thought, not a fact. And um, it's hard. It, working on oneself mind, I, I, I always imagine that we wake up in the morning and we have this little altar to the mind. So we have this little figure and we call it the mind. And we sit and we kneel and we go, whatever you tell me, I'm going to believe. Whatever you say is going to be the <laughs> truth. And that every morning we bow down to our mind like that. And our mind doesn't say a whole lot that's actually valid in our everyday. It wanders. This storytelling concept, it's so real in so many ways. There's no other comment I can make about it other than we're always telling ourselves stories. And I think stories can be used for good or for evil, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Just just this morning, I had a client call me and I had encouraged him to have a very direct conversation with someone because he was having tension with a colleague. And they got into a room and they both presented their sides. And it was very clear that they each were telling themselves a story that was not true. About the other one. Exactly. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah. Exactly. And he even commented that his colleagues started getting a bit defensive when they were having the conversation. And he had to pull himself back and say, listen, this isn't about accusation. Mm. This is about clearing the air so that we can reestablish trust. And that we are, when we're in conflict with people, it very often is that we're responding to our own story about what's happening, uh, for sure. It's a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, it's scary to have that much power (laughs) over your reality. But on the other hand, it's it's also very empowering to have that much power, to Mm -hmm. know that you ultimately control the way you see your experience. Yeah. I, I, I think that we do it mostly when we're anxious to some degree, so that it's like I... I notice my body sensations because I've done this uh, controlling my mind uh, or at least, yeah, controlling my mind for a very long time. But if I get a letter from the IRS and it's on the return address, my body starts moving as if something dangerous is happening. And I go, oh, there's that body thing happening again. And I'm really anxious and I didn't even open this thing up and listen to the stories I'm going to be telling myself about it. So I catch it. Now, sometimes that calms the body sensations down, but sometimes they keep going until I open up the elevator. But at least I am conscious while it's going on, watching the body sensations, acknowledging them, but not buying into them. And I've never been in trouble with the IRS, knock on wood. And, (laughs) um, uh, And it's usually a reminder of something or they're missing a piece of information. So I give it to my accountant, whatever. But all I have to see is IRS at the return address, and there goes my body. Automatic response, stimulus response, no choice, but I watch it. So I, so often we're telling stories when we're anxious, and that's a good sign to start if anyone wants to start paying attention. Like, what am I telling myself that's making me uncomfortable? I'm laughing because just before we were talking, I started getting body sensations that I've historically associated with anxiety. I'm like, why am I, am I anxious? Because I'm very comfortable to have this conversation. And I realized I had a shot of espresso and two cappuccinos this morning. (laughs) So it wasn't even anything to do with my psychology. So I, I use that example to highlight the fact that we I mean, it could be very simple like that. It could be meaningless. And we then apply the meaning in retrospect. And that's where we get into trouble. Yeah. So the storytelling happens and then often the anxiety or anger could show up or hurt could show up. And we tell the story and then the feelings show up. And then we have the feelings which stimulate more stories. And then the stories stimulate more feelings. And now we're down a tunnel. We have just left. 2023 and we're marching down to sometime decades ago and uh, we're off and actually away from the moment. 
I wish we could make this a two hour episode because <laughs> I feel like I could spend the entire day talking <laughs> philosophically like this with you. I want I want to end on one question. Yes. The wisdom you have is vast. The experience you have is vast. Take this however you will. What do you know now that you wish you knew back then? Um, I wish I knew that it would turn out okay. Because when I was about 12, I think I was a depressed kid at 12, and I couldn't really find my place because I am a little different. (laughs) Uh, I show up as similar, but I am a little different. I couldn't quite find my place, and I didn't know it would work out. And I I have gotten surprised. That 12-year-old has gotten really surprised that it worked out and that I would be able to find my place being a little bit different, that it would, I wish I would have known that. My 12-year-old would have had much more fun, and um, I would have had a whole lot less self-doubt, for sure. And I think it does all work out, as, as long as we keep learning. And my mother, who is a brilliant woman, but thought I, she would say, where did I get you? Uh, because I wasn't <laughs> like her. <laughs> I wasn't cold when she was cold. Let's put it right, that way. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, she was... She would say, where did I get you? Because I couldn't see through her eyes, which she wanted me to, that how I was, was perfectly okay. And I could find my place. So that would have been nice also, that I would have known. But I was smart enough to ask her if she was cold. And <laughs> I mean, the fact that you did that at that age, yeah. I think that <laughs> speaks volumes to why you've had yeah. such a long career in doing what you've Right. Oh, the thing that she said I wanted to say is that I always worried about you because you made so many mistakes. This is my mother. Beautiful woman, Mm -hmm. but very. I I always worried about you because you made so many mistakes. But now I realize you learn from your mistakes. And I think that that was amazing that she would say that for who she was. And the other is that is the that is why I have gotten to be successful because I have not only learn from my mistakes, I teach from my mistakes. I give them as examples. You're making me think how much easier could you experience life if you just know it's all going to work out? Yeah. Because it does. If you learn from your mistakes, if you learn as you go, if you keep repeating the same thing over and over again, same things will happen over and over again. Yeah. Einstein, the <laughs> yes. definition of insanity, yes, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different, different results. results. Exactly. Marilyn, this has been incredible, and I am so grateful that you've given us so much time. I had no doubt this was going to be my longest episode, <laughs> and I am very happy that it is. Okay, great. And I'm also grateful for all the wisdom you've shared with me personally. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. 